I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, Developing a Rule of Life. Among the many obstacles in our time and place that stand between us and a life built on the spiritual rhythms of Jesus, one in particular poses unique and pressing problems in keeping us anxious, addicted, distracted, unhappy, and disconnected, and we carry it around in our pockets. So before we get into the drafting phase of our rule of life, we have to talk about a rule of digital life and about Satan and the smartphone. When I was uh, 19 years old, in the recent past, uh, I got my first cellular telephone. That's right. It was a Nokia 6110, it was called. I got it for free with a contract because it was already outdated, having been released five years earlier in 1997. Is it up there? Yeah, look at that. There it is. That's not the actual phone, but it looked just like that. I had begun at that point traveling most of the time, and rather than using calling cards and pay phones, as I had been doing, with this device, I could make phone calls back home as long as they were after 9 p.m. Uh, or on the weekends, and in a place where I had cell phone coverage, which was about half the time. Um, it was a brave new frontier of technology, exciting stuff. But um, I was not a novice. I'd already experienced the wild world of cellular communication in the early 90s when my family had one of these in the console of our car. Again, not the actual phone, but it looked just like that. Man, the envy of our peers. And I was already familiar with the concept of cell phones long before that because of this guy. Yeah, you remember that? You remember? Yeah, there you go. Um, but my favorite cell phone was this. In 2005, I met the girl that I would marry, and we used these, both of us, these things, to send thousands of text messages back and forth while I was on the road and to talk uh, every evening when the minutes were free and on the weekends. And it was then that I heard an accusation that would later blanket entire cultures around the world, and it was, you are always on your phone. So fast forward to 2011, when I ordered my first iPhone. It was incredible. I spent hours examining this thing's possibilities. I was using this new thing called FaceTime to make video calls, which were previously only on the Jetsons. To my wife uh, from the other side of the country or somewhere else in the world, I was watching things like YouTubes and YouTubes. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> uh, yeah, not that old. Recent memory, 19. I was watching YouTube and streaming podcasts and getting directions, which is really helpful for me personally. I was looking up the nearest gas station or restaurant and sending emails and checking my calendar from all sorts of places all over the world, really. I could read books on this thing and make notes on this thing and have text conversations with a dozen people at one time. We all got them at once. So Patrick, uh, he was briefly obsessed with this game called Tiny Tower. This, and he made a note on this teaching that just said tiny tower at the point. <laughs> so there it is. So for a guy who spent the bulk of most days riding in a van, these were all incredible developments, and they were all at once, and they could fit in the palm of my hand. 
Before then, iPhones had been around for a few years already, as I recall, but they were unaffordable and they were inaccessible and they were relegated to one carrier and at exorbitant prices to get in and out of contracts. So only a select few had them. But when Apple moved over to Verizon, they offered cheap devices, unlimited plans in an effort to attract new customers and to, I'm sure, steal old ones from rival services. And now, lots of people had iPhones for the first time. It honestly reminded me of the release and rising popularity of the Nintendo Entertainment System in the 80s because they were popular, they were well-known, but they were still novel enough that newcomers would crowd around them when someone brought them out in public or something like that. They would say, oh my gosh, you have one? Is it as great as I think it is? No one knew then what was coming. With that, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6. For the past few weeks, we have been in a series and a set of practices based around an ancient idea that was developed by the early church from the lifestyle and teachings of Jesus. See, the biographies of Jesus present a portrait of a man whose life is marked by spiritual rhythms. For example, Jesus gets up early to pray. Often, he sometimes spends entire nights in prayer. He attends synagogue. He studies the scriptures. He fasts. He practices silence and solitude and listening prayer. He practices community. And more than that, he explicitly taught his disciples to do these things as well, as did the subsequent authors of the New Testament, as did pivotal men and women in the early church, as have centuries of church history right up to this very church, and on. But acknowledging that as disciples of Jesus that we should probably attempt to do what Jesus said we should do is much easier than actually doing it, especially when our lives are marked by work and friends and spouses and kids and school and obligations and family and distraction after distraction after distraction, both good and bad. But though their context was very different, even the early church centuries ago understood that implementing the spiritual rhythms of Jesus is impossible without a deliberate and disciplined means of doing so. And one way of doing exactly that, they argued, was with something called a rule of life. It's kind of like a calendar and kind of like a code by which one lives. All of us already live by certain rhythms and routines, good and bad and organized and chaotic. A rule of life is a means by which we examine those rhythms and routines and we dispense with the unhealthy ones and we organize the things that enable us to thrive as disciples of Jesus. Andy Andy Crouch defined a rule of life as a set of practices to guard our habits and and guide our lives. Now, we've already talked in depth about what a rule of life is and isn't and how your unique personality and season of life will shape your unique rule of life. If you missed a Sunday the last few weeks, go back and catch up on the podcast. We are now at something of a hinge moment in this series. Next week, the plan is our good friend Bethany Allen will be here to give a a standalone teaching, and we'll have some time to catch up on the practices in your Van City communities because of the chili cook-off is the whole thing. You'll figure it out. And then we'll spend just a couple more weeks working through the specific categories of your rule of life as you, in theory, write your own. But before all that, there's something that we have to address, something unique to our time and place, but possibly One of, if not the greatest barrier, at least for many of us, not all, but many of us, in launching and living by a rule of life 
and you carry it around in your pocket. See, amongst disciples of Jesus, every culture or generation or even person has their own unique obstacles in embracing the spiritual rhythms of Jesus. But this one might be different, and it might be one of the biggest barriers between many of us and the freedom that we want to find in Jesus. But before we get into it, let's go to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Are you guys there? Are you ready to do some work? You all right? Great. Thank you. Now, before we read the text, here's the background and context of what we're about to read. 1 Corinthians, as many of you know, is actually a letter. It's written by a master apprentice of Jesus called Paul and sent to a relatively new community of Jesus' disciples in a city called Corinth. Now, Corinth, in the first century, was a bit like, they say, an exaggerated version of Portland meets Las Vegas, where loose sex and adultery and gay sex and orgies and pederasty, which is an older man living in a sexual relationship with a young boy, were all normative, part of the culture, um, everyday things. And it was one of the biggest hubs for prostitution in the ancient world. In fact, we have ancient sources that indicate the name Corinthian was at one point a slang word for someone accused of prostitution. So that's the world into which Paul plants a church of Jesus followers, and that church, perhaps not surprisingly, later struggles to detach themselves from the sexuality of Corinth around them. And to address this issue, Paul enters into a kind of theoretical dialogue with the Corinthians here in chapter 6, beginning with verse 12. He writes, I have the right to do anything. Now, pause for a moment already. Is that statement true or false? Oh, wow, it's divided across the room. Very interesting. It's actually theologically false. In fact, later translations have actually added in quotation marks, and the latest update of the NIV adds in the words, you say, following the quote, meaning Paul is not arguing that you have the right to do anything or that everything is permissible, as some translations have it. Instead, he's quoting a popular line of thinking amongst Jesus' followers in Corinth so that he can dismantle it. Just look, keep reading in verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. In Corinth, a popular misunderstanding had pervaded the church of Jesus, that because the way of Jesus sets us free, that kind of language is all across the scriptures, especially the New Testament, the kind of freedom we have been given is to indulge our desire, the church in Corinth believed. And this line of thinking is as alive and well as it has ever been. Now, it sounds a little bit more like, you know, I just can't imagine Jesus telling someone not to do something because that would be unloving or some variation of that idea. Today, Cam told me that he honestly couldn't count how many conversations he's had with people who espouse some version of that kind of thinking. I can't either. And Paul is saying, listen, you are missing the point. A better mantra for disciples of Jesus, yes, you have freedom, but a better mantra is not, I can do anything, but instead, I will not be mastered by anything. Or more literally in Greek, I will not be brought under the power of anything. Now, again, this is a passage about rampant sexual sin. It's not about smartphones or the digital world. But as I was reading this week, um, I had these words come to mind again and again and again because, and don't miss this, Paul isn't warning the church in Corinth about something that's going on out there in the big bad world, the evil world all around them. Paul is saying, 
this thing that the world does has crept into the church and you don't even realize what it's doing to you. Paul is saying, listen, just because it seems like the entire world around you and even those inside the church have given permission to do something, just because you are free, just because you're an autonomous person, it doesn't mean that everything is good. Do not be mastered by anything. Now, today, the passage is applicable for a number of reasons still. Like in the first century, we live in a time and place in which the sexualized sin of the world continues to invade the church. And not just that, we live in a place where materialism and greed and violence and political idolatry, all problems faced by the early church, continue to confront modern disciples of Jesus. And we can and have talked about those kinds of things on multiple occasions and at length, and we will again as our study of the scriptures dictates. But when I first set to work studying and preparing for this particular series about a rule of life, I realized that among the many, many obstacles in our time and our place that stand between us and a life built on the spiritual rhythms of Jesus, one in particular kept coming to mind, something that for the vast majority of us poses unique and pressing problems in keeping us anxious and addicted and distracted and unhappy and disconnected, and we carry it around in our pockets. This thing will overlap and permeate much of your spiritual rhythms and routines for better or for worse. So, before we get into the drafting phase of your actual rule of life, we have to talk about a rule of digital life and Satan and the smartphone. Now, let's get something out of the way, having just made that joke. If you've been to Van City for more than a couple of times, uh, you've likely heard some or a lot of my personal disdain for digital addiction and what I've described as the cesspool of social media culture. It's one of my things, I get it. I can turn an audience against me with a few lines. It's great, hilarious. Um, I, I even wrote an entire novel about an alternate 1987 in which alien reptiles unveil their doomsday device and turns out to be a smartphone, to which the people who know me responded, shocker. Um, and what I've learned in the last few years when I bring my critique of the digital world to bear on our discipleship to Jesus is that a lot of you think oh, he's just grumpy and hates Instagram, and you tune out. And maybe some of you think, huh, food for thought, and then you move on. And I get it. I have been nothing if not strongly worded, and that by design, I do believe it's very important, pressing for us as disciples of Jesus. But please listen to me on this. Tonight is not about that. Tonight is very different. This is not a rant about image curation or social media phoniness. It's not me on a high horse or on a hobby horse. I, like most, not all, but most of you, have a smartphone. I live in a world of apps and streaming services and data and content, as do all of you, whether you have a smartphone or not. And it just might be one of the great barriers between us and a rule of life brought to fruition. James Williams, who is an ex-Google strategist, he built the metric system for the company's global search advertising business. He called the tech industry, and I quote, the largest, most standardized, and most centralized form of attentional control in human history. In 2017, Sean Parker, who, if you know, helped found and popularize Napster and Facebook, he wondered this, 
God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains, the thought process that went into building these applications. Facebook, which he helped found, being the first among them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever, and that's going to get you to contribute more content, and that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like me or myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. In this exchange, you are not the consumer you are the product. Your data is farmed and sold. Your browsing history and shopping habits, the things you say out loud with an earshot of your iPhone or laptop or Alexa, and then curate the advertisements fed back into the cycle to be sold again. And if the digital landscape is the danger zone, we're all more than a little vulnerable as we spend more and more of our waking hours wandering around in it with targets on our backs. One recent study found that the average iPhone user in particular touches their phone 2,617 times a day. Every smartphone user, not just iPhones, is on his or her phone for two and a half hours over 76 sessions every day, statistically. Another study on just millennials in particular put the number at twice as much. And don't be fooled, though there is often an upside and a downside to many forms of tech, not all screens are equal. When Apple updated the iPhone's iOS to include detailed reports called screen, screen time reports, the, the document how much time you spend on your phone and doing what, I was personally pretty bummed with the results. I was like, wow, it's going to be, oh, God, you know. Um, so I set out to change it. And by the time... I got my daily screen time report down to about a half hour a day average. The near universal pushback I got from others went something like, well, yeah, but how much time do you spend on your laptop in your office? Or, well, yeah, but how much time do you spend at the movie theater every month or whatever it might be? Which are fine questions in their own right and deserve attention and conversation. But we all need to understand that research indicates that something uniquely detrimental, something more costly, is happening to us when we carry those screens around with us. You can't pull a laptop from your pocket at a dinner party. You don't mindlessly scroll through feeds on a television or reach for a movie theater with any spare second of silence in the rhythms of your day. And those moments add up. And it's not just time we're losing. We are losing our ability to pay attention. Research indicates that the passing attention span of the average American in the year 2000 was 12 seconds, which is already a bummer, I thought, and it has since dropped to eight seconds, which is, by comparison, lower than a goldfish. And stats like these are hardly scarce or unknown. I didn't have to mine the dark web to find this stuff. It's not a conspiracy theory. A cursory Google search will provide anyone interested with a veritable avalanche of studies on the effects of the digital revolution with dire results. Almost none of them sound promising. Devices have been shown in study after study after study to contribute to or cause loneliness and depression, to steward and reinforce isolation, to inhibit empathy, to poison relationships, to stunt learning and development in children, to eradicate focus, to numb human connection while making us generally more distracted, 
anxious, and unrested people. Devices keep us from doing the things we'd rather be doing. As a pastor, really just as a human, I can hardly exaggerate the sheer volume of people I routinely observe lamenting their inability to say, read more, or spend more time with their friends, or go out to catch a movie, or finish a project, or whatever it might be. But check the screen time totals on their devices at the end of the week, and you'll find hours of time devoted to not just pragmatic things like GPS and a flashlight, but to social media, or news feeds, or sports feeds, or memes, or surfing the internet, or whatever it might be. Hours that many of us feel as if we just can't find to do the other things that matter more to us, at least deep down. And that's before we talk about how much time or how little time we spend in prayer or reading the Bible or the practices of Jesus. The hours are there. They are just in the wrong place. So what do we do? This thing can, if you let it, sabotage your best laid plans for a rule of life before you even write it. And I don't want that for us. Certainly for myself, for my own family, and for us as a community. I realize that I have sounded at many times, to many of you, I'm sure, like an extremist, you know, old man Josh and the phone thing or whatever. But honestly, behind the sarcasm or, or what powers the strong words, is a deep desire that our community could, together, me with you, learn to embody a better way. And don't expect us to swear off technology. I don't think that that's a great idea. I don't expect us to start a bonfire and throw our phones and tablets in it. You know, apparently that's really bad anyway. It's poisonous. Don't do that, they say. <laughs> but what if we become the kind of community that was different? who spend more time present and focused and paying attention in the actual world than we do in the digital one, and by a long shot. But how do we do that? There's no simple or easy answer, certainly, but we can start, I think, with something called a rule of digital life. Interestingly, uh, St. Benedict, who popularized the idea of a rule of life, he did so in becoming a monk and embodying an entirely subversive alternative society within a monastery that entirely rejected what St. Benedict felt had become the compromised and corrupted church out there in the world. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting we become monks or turn Van City into a monastery, relax. Uh, but what interests me is the simple admission that if we want to be different, we will simply have to embrace a very different way of doing things. Now remember, we began this series remembering that Jesus taught his disciples the secret to spiritual formation. Abide in the vine, he said, or remain in me. Stay connected to Jesus by his spirit. This is why Dallas Willard argued, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God, abiding in the vine, remain in me, is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. Soon, our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. There is, I'm afraid, a war for your attention. Make no mistake. Attention shapes the things that you love. 
meaning the things to which you lend your eye and ear, be they something good like a role model or a good book or something less so like a TV series or a smartphone, whatever it might be, they occupy your thought life and they take up residence in your interests and shape your adoration. Your attention goes to that which you love. All of our problems in the journey of discipleship stem from wrongly ordered loves. And I say this as someone as guilty as everyone else in this room. Your mind and attention is typically commandeered by your preference. And attention gives way to formation. The more attention you devote to something, the more you are shaped by it over time. And neuroscience confirms what Jesus argued millennia ago. If you remain connected to Jesus, your attention on Jesus, your mind on the teachings and things of Jesus, the practices of Jesus, you will inevitably become more like Jesus over time. But there are contenders to Jesus' seat of attention in your life. To create a rule of life, we must be empowered by Paul's words. I will not be mastered by anything. So I think it's time for us as a family to consider a rule of digital life. It will act as something of an appendix to your overall rule of life because your personal approach to devices and streaming and smartphones will bleed into nearly every dimension of your rule. So let's begin with this. I want to show you guys some of my personal rule of digital life, but with a knowing disclaimer. I am not suggesting in any way that you need to follow my rule. Is that much very clear? You don't have to. I'm showing you as an example, food for thought, possible inspiration. If you want it, if you see something you want to steal outright, steal it. If you see an idea that you like, but you want to adopt it and adapt it for your context, go for that. But we have to start somewhere. So here's an idea of how a rule of digital life might look. First, like I said, I do have a smartphone and I use it. Uh, I use it uh, almost every single day. Uh, I'll tell you more about that in a second, but it's not always on my person. A lot of the time it is. It's in my pocket. I usually don't have it when I teach, by the way. I just wanted to do that whole visual thing, this thing, and so there it is. And guess what? I like things about this thing. I really enjoy you know, being able to stream and find new music. I use that all the time. I'm really grateful for maps, personally. I would not get any, I wouldn't be in this room right now, this evening, without the map. Um, I like calculators. I like the flashlight. I think Cash, personally, is m maybe the best pragmatic app ever invented. I really do. I even really enjoy group texting. That's not a joke. I know some people gripe about it. We call them no fun. Um, <laughs> so I like a lot of things about it. That said, I am also acutely aware of the ability of this thing to destroy my soul. So a few years ago, I made my smartphone a dumb phone, which means I deleted all the internet browsers and social media apps. I deleted things like uh, any news feed or YouTube or streaming service. Uh, I then removed the app store itself and locked it with a password, and only Abby has the password <laughs> to get it back. I've disabled almost all the push notifications that would come from a phone, including setting almost every text conversation that isn't Abby to hide alerts, which means that it doesn't beep at me to get my attention. Um, my wife, Abby, always has full welcome access to my phone and laptop at all times, including text threads and emails. And we often, sorry if you're texting Abby, we often read each other's text messages just to find out what's going on in the day. Um, when I get home from work, I put away my keys and my wallet and headphones, things like that, from my ride home, and I put my phone away. No phone at the dinner table, 
uh, no phone during family time, no isolated phone use at social gatherings or get-togethers with friends, meaning if I'm just sitting there and conversation dwindles, I don't pull out a phone and use it once a week. I keep my phone turned off or put away for an entire day, barring the need for directions or some such practical thing. And if ever um, Abby and I do access our phones when we normally wouldn't, we make it a point to tell our kids what we're using them for and why while we do it. So we'll say things like, I'm just getting my phone so that I can buy our movie tickets before we go, or I'm just getting my phone so that I can check when the restaurant opens so that our kids don't get used to the image of their parents routinely zoning out into a mysterious phone vortex. They don't know what we're doing or why. When Abby is home, she told me with the kids while I'm at the church office, she prefers to keep her phone up on a shelf during the day, even if it's on and she's using it infrequently, um, so that she has to, if she wants to use it, walk over to it, stand there, and then leave it again, creating less likelihood that she'll just reach for it as a reflex. Um, I don't use my phone personally for email. I relegate my office email to one day a week unless something is urgent. Um, but some of the most helpful aspects that I've learned to practice and have gone to, to, on to incorporate into my rule of life are things that you can't always schedule. For instance, I make it a rule for myself personally to not use my phone while waiting for takeout or in a line somewhere. No phone sitting on a park bench um, while my kids are playing. No phone waiting in an airport terminal. Instead, I either carry a book or I just look around and think <laughs> um, and judge everyone that's on their phones. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, we also have a rule of digital life for our family that includes, amongst other things, uh, no devices, even kid devices for the kids, and the kids are never allowed to tinker with a phone or with a device without an adult watching them, of course, and then only on approved games, rare specific times, not at home, not to cure boredom, not as a babysitter. Um, our rule personally is no smartphones or social media for our kids until they're 18. I got Beck uh, an original Nintendo uh, uh, and recently for Christmas he got a Sega Genesis um, that we have a blast playing together and we would play it too much if left to our own devices. So we make it a rule that we only play it together and on the weekends. That's the kind of stuff that we're working out in our own family that we're trying to live out as a part of our rule of life, both as a family and me as an individual. You can borrow some of those. You can use it for, to get ideas going. You can just start from scratch with what works for you if none of that makes sense. If you know someone else that you think demonstrates really healthy rhythms of disconnecting from technology and devices, ask them what their secret is or what their rhythms are. And if you feel like you have or are getting a really good handle on this already, which some of you I know are, then just clarify it, articulate it, write it down, and then try to commit to it. When you get there with your community, the practice will be up at vancity.church slash rule of life. Author Tony Schwartz wrote a really interesting opinion piece for the New York Times titled Addicted to Distraction. And in it, he wrote this, addiction is the relentless pull to a substance or an activity that becomes so compulsive it ultimately interferes with everyday life. By that definition, nearly everyone I know is addicted in some measure to the internet. It has arguably replaced work itself as our most socially sanctioned addiction. This is, in my experience anyway, the real reason that pulling at the thread of our digital distractedness is often fruitless or divisive or even worse. 
addressing the issue is kind of like probing a cavity. It hits a, a deep nerve. And few people, in my experience, respond to the conversation calmly or with a healthy self-awareness. Self Instead, they or we often get angry or defensive or shift blame, and we argue technicalities and loopholes, and we devalue any attempt that we see in anyone else to do better. And I get it. I've done it. Admitting that you spend too much time with a device isn't exactly like admitting, I read too much, I do too many good things in a day, I get too much exercise. It doesn't feel great, it's kind of embarrassing. But you would have to live under a rock not to notice the world's problems with digital addiction. And in a few short years, innumerable books and psychological journals and sociological essays have been published to the same basic end. Research has been conducted, studies to update studies, satire, pop culture, black mirror. Even I wrote a book about it. And we all know it's happening. And most of us, I think, want to live differently, at least a little bit. So to end... Let me put it this way. I think we can begin by admitting that this is difficult. You live in an unprecedented season of human history in which a socially acceptable dopamine hit fits in your pocket. And while it offers much beneficial technological pragmatism, it, it's also a dangerous snare that offers distraction and narcissism and isolation and pornography all at the touch of a finger. And even without those overtly sinister things, it stands to drain away two of your most precious commodities as a human being, your time and your attention. That is a complicated predicament. It is. But at the end of the day, this thing is a false god. So maybe your rule of digital life won't include making your smartphone a dumb phone or, or, or deleting your social, social media apps this very night. And that's totally fine. You don't have to start there. Start with asking the question. When it comes to the way that I understand and interact with technology and devices, how can I equip myself to best give my time and attention to God and to the things of Jesus? I think, if we're entirely honest, most of us would likely admit we will need some time away from devices to do that well. And just saying something like, yeah, I'd like to spend less time on my phone won't make that happen. But a rule of digital life could be a good start, a place where you think through and then write down and articulate with the community of other disciples of Jesus, I will power my phone down for 20, 24 hours once a week. Or my family will make this our standard. No phones at the dinner table or whatever it might be. Or I will set limits on my own apps. No more than 10 minutes a day on Instagram or Facebook or Safari or whatever it might be. Or I won't bring my phone out in social settings or at community. For the love of God, at least set the standard to never under any circumstances reach for your phone during a movie. Amen? <laughs> Amen? There was none. It's on, there we go, okay, thank you, bye, oh, jeez. See, you used up all your clapping on cam, that's the problem. <laughs> and be prepared for this, honestly. Even when you start small, to activate your rule in a world that will often not understand it. Some people might sneer and say, yeah, but I've seen you do this. Don't worry about them, just keep at it. 
Or some people might laugh and say, oh, no smartphones for your kids? Yeah, right, we'll see about that. Don't worry about them. You don't have to do what everyone else is doing. I had a guy (laughs) outraged tell me that I wasn't a real pastor because I turn off my phone once a week. That's fine. I still do it. (laughs) Um, And I realized that it can start to sound when you put it all down on paper, like a a rigid list of do's and don'ts. And in some sense, it kind of is. Frankly, that's not all bad. But actually, the rules are the outworking of something deeper, something more crucial. Do you want to be the men and women God has made you to be? Do you want to be a friend, a brother or sister, a mother or father who is learning to walk daily, moment by moment, in the empowerment of God's Spirit? Do you want the full and uninhibited power of God alive and active and at work in your life and your community and your vocation and your dream and your family? Do you want to be able to see and experience growth and maturity and freedom in your discipleship to Jesus? When I sent this teaching out to our team, Tab, who's one of our elders, mentioned something that I think touches the heart of why this conversation is so crucial. He said that even as a guy who isn't on social media, he is acutely aware of the temptation to reach for a screen or a device to occupy the silence of any and every quiet moment. But, he said, those are the moments, more often than not, when God tends to speak. We've all heard or seen or been the person who misses something their kid says because they were staring down at a phone or who misses part of the conversation or a scene in the movie because of their phone or who doesn't really see the scenic view or the concert or the special moment because they were looking at it through a phone. But what if what you're missing is not just the conversation or the view or the moment, but God? To truly sit in the spacious freedom to hear from the Spirit, to sit with your own thoughts, to ponder the things of Jesus and the way you feel and why, we must become people who can use their technology but do not need it, who can turn it off and put it away or leave it at home, who don't panic when they realize it's not there, who don't worry what they're missing, who feel no impulse to refresh a feed or check a score or watch a story because this is not our master, Jesus is. Under the exclusive lordship of Jesus, we must learn to say, I will not be mastered by anything. I will remain in Jesus because he is better. With that, let me pray and ask God's spirit to empower us to be the people of God. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.